Good morning, church. My name is Paisley, and I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him, in his dis- with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that, Je- that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's the word of God. Thank you, Paisley. Uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you need a Bible, my son Levi is back there with, with Bibles to hand out. You can throw up your hand, and he will bring you one. Uh, if you're on a tablet or a phone, um, we use the... ESV, so you can follow along there. The verses will also be on the screen. Levi, thank you. Covered everybody, buddy. Thank you. Um, okay. So, fun fact about me: I really enjoy reading a good historical biography or watching a good historical or social documentary. I watch documentaries about gangs and gang activities or drug lords or cult leaders, uh, there's something really fascinating to me about uh, the power and control that these people have over others. Like, what would cause a person to leave their home, leave their job, leave their family, or anything else to follow somebody else? Whether it be organized crime or joining some kind of a cult. I also read a lot of history. I think there's just a lot we can learn from history. In regards to the church especially, there's a lot we can learn from our brothers and our sisters who have gone before us. Because Christianity as a faith system is not a new thing. It didn't just happen in the 20th, 21st centuries. It is over 2,000 years old. So ever since the book of Acts, Generations of believers have been trying to figure out the marriage between proper doctrine and action. So I try to read a lot of church history because there's a lot we can learn from church history. Recently I've been into biographies about famous musicians. Usually like they start out super poor, then they get super wealthy, then they make a train wreck of their lives. Um, I tried to read one presidential biography every single year. I'm specifically interested in the presidents that were leading during times of some intense conflict, like Lincoln in the Civil War or the Roosevelt years of World War I and World War II. I'm specifically curious about what decisions they made, why they made those decisions, and then what the fallout was because of those decisions. Like, what was the response of Congress in light of the decisions they made? I really just want to know what kind of leaders these men were. Throughout history, we've seen good leaders, we've seen bad leaders, and we can learn from both. But you can learn 
what type of leader a person is by the type of following that this leader generates. Think about it like this. Have you ever seen a business where there is constant employee turnover? Like you go to this particular fast food restaurant and every time you go in there, there's some new 15-year-old kid pressing the buttons and screwing up your order. Or the adverse, you go to another place and they've had the same employees for years. That speaks a lot about the management and the leadership of the company. Another sign of good leadership is seeing potential and cultivating potential with a lot of intentionality and patience. What we see is that good leadership tends to move towards helping a person grow in their giftings, grow in their strengths, grow in their understandings of their weaknesses or whatever uh, work they need to do. And, and whether that be life or business or ministry, there's a willingness to bear with patience and love with those people underneath them. So what we're going to see in Jesus this morning is this principle played out to the nth degree. In worldly leadership... Good leaders see potential in what could be. In Jesus, what we see is even when the world has rejected a person, even when the world has labeled this person an outcast or some kind of a social pariah or something even worse, Jesus sees past that. Jesus looks at the heart. Jesus sees a person that is in need of change and a life in need of redemption. So my hope for us this morning is that we can identify with some of the characters in this story. May we be led to faith and repentance and belief and worship this morning through the ministry of Jesus. Because listen to me, you are either one type of character in the story or another. You are either like the tax collectors or you're like the Pharisees. So we need to pray we need to ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts this morning and reveal to us where we need him the most. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful people. Lord, in the midst of just the craziness of this morning with people being sick in our church, Lord, we pray against any spiritual attack that may be taking place in our church. Lord, I just pray that you would heal our brothers and sisters that have all called in sick here this morning. Lord, that you would um, just bless their lives. Lord, and for this morning and in this room specifically, I pray for the hearers of your word. Lord, that you would soften hearts to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we just be led to worship and honor and praise of your great name because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, may we see you for who you truly are. Lord, may you teach us to see ourselves for what we truly are. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you this morning. And may that lead us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we love you. We need you. We ask these things in your name again. Amen and amen. All right, Mark uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 in the ESV. I'm going to read here. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, 
And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So if you remember last week, we're continuing in our series of Mark. Jesus was at a house in Capernaum and a huge crowd had gathered around him to hear him teach. This is going to be a pretty common occurrence for Jesus. He's popular now as a miracle worker and he's becoming popular at this point as a man who teaches with with authority. Jesus in our text last week demonstrates yet again that he has both authority in the physical realm by healing a paralytic and he also has authority in the spiritual realm because he cast out demons and last week he declared forgiveness of sins for the paralytic. So this week we're going to see Jesus likely in the same region as he's taking a walk by the sea. What we're seeing is Jesus cannot escape this crowd. The whole crowd is following him. They're pressing in around him. They're trying to get a glimpse of this amazing young rabbi. And many are just coming to try to touch him. So that just by touching him, they too can be healed. My personal feelings about this text and what's going on here is that Jesus in his humanity was just trying to get a little reprieve. He's just trying to take a walk and get away from the crowd. He was trying to get a little solitude. But also what we see in Jesus is that whenever there was a crowd or a person around in need, Jesus' sympathy was always aroused. That is Jesus. Loving and gracious, even above his own personal wants or needs or desires. And as Jesus is walking along, he walks by this tax collector's booth and he sees this guy, Levi. It is pretty much accepted among uh, Bible scholars that Levi is the same guy as Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew in your Bible. There's some debate about this, but it isn't going to be helpful to us at all to even discuss that. It's not going to be edifying to us or profitable, and it'll take us down into the weeds of some things that we really don't have time for, and that isn't necessarily going to get us to Jesus anyways, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, If you want to do some of your own research, you can go to Matthew 9.9. We see the same encounter. You can check it out on your own, and if you want some resources, hit me up after, and I'll, I'll, I'll get you some books about it. Um, but Levi and the Apostle Matthew, I think, are the same guy. Regardless of whether you agree or not, it doesn't really matter if they're the same person or not. Levi and Matthew are both tax collectors. So here's what you do need to know for our time today. Tax collectors in this time were considered the worst of the worst in society. Think about whatever person you are unwilling to associate with. That is a first century Jewish tax collector. What was happening here is that the Romans had moved in. They had occupied Jerusalem. That is the capital of the Jewish nation. And they were ruling over the Jewish people. So the Romans came in and hired these Jewish men to be tax collectors, to collect tax for them. So these tax collectors um, would then turn around and they would charge whatever they wanted to charge. So let's say you owed your government 10 bucks. These tax collectors would come in and say, you owe $15 to the Roman government. So then you'd pay your tax collector $15. They would put five in their pocket and give the other 10 to the Roman government. And they would do this over and over 
and over again. So they'd rob their own people. They'd get rich in the process. They were helping their oppressors. And the Romans didn't care what the tax collectors did because they were getting paid too. This is state-sponsored thieving. It's like our version of the IRS, but so much worse. Imagine one of your relatives stole from you. And not only once, but it was like a common occurrence. Let's say it was your brother for the sake of this illustration. Your brother was constantly taking your money. And your dad was cool with it. This is sort of the situation. The Romans are are the dad. You may not like his rules, but until you're out of his house, you don't really have a choice. you got to listen to what he says. And your brother's the tax collector. He lives under the same authority as your dad, but he's figured out a way to manipulate a situation to his advantage. That's sort of what's going on here. You can imagine, right, why people don't really like tax collectors. Their countrymen, even their own families, did not want anything to do with these guys. These men were excluded from worshiping in the Jewish synagogue, so that means they can't even worship in their own religious context. So here we see Jesus showing up yet again and going completely against social and religious expectations of him. Jesus steps right up to the tax collector and he says, follow me. He's inviting this man into an intimate relationship with him. This is as scandalous as Jesus touching a leper. By calling Levi, Jesus yet again is showing that he came to call sinners to himself. And that is exactly what he set out to do. And Levi's response is even more radical. It's probably even more radical than Peter, James, John, and Andrew leaving their family fishing businesses. I bet in their downtime, those four guys still did a little fishing from time to time. Not so with Levi. He left a very lucrative thieving business to follow Jesus. Ample wealth, ample resources, now and in the future, and he just left them all behind at his tax booth in order to follow this Jesus guy. But why? Why would Levi leave everything and follow Jesus? Even more, the question is, why would Jesus invite such a guy to do this, to follow him? Man, what's clear from Levi's actions is that he recognizes Jesus has something better for me than this. Jesus is offering me something better. He recognizes something in Jesus that he wanted to join in and be a part of. Jesus, on the other hand, sees what Levi is. He sees Levi as a sinner in need of salvation and saw what he could become. Not a low life, not a robbing tax collector deserving condemnation. Jesus saw not a wicked life of a tax collector and the wickedness of a first century mafia member, but the changed life of a disciple who would become an evangelist and an apostle. Man, that's what God's grace can do. Jesus saw in Levi what nobody else could have seen. The same is true about you. 
Jesus sees in you what nobody else probably or could possibly ever see. Jesus looks past all your imperfections. He looks past your sin, your past. And he, through his grace and love, wants to turn you into what you were always intended to be. A mature believer made in the image of God to reflect his glory forever and forever. Amen. Regardless of how bad you think you are, and believe me, we are all really messed up, you have not out God's ability to forgive you. And not only does Jesus see your potential and what you could be, not only does Christ transform us into the image of his son, Christ loves us and pursues us right where we are today. Just like he does with Levi and the other tax collectors. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is all made possible through the cross and resurrection. Because of the cross, the dividing wall of hostility between God and man has been torn down. Because of the cross, we now see Jesus, the friend of sinners. This is the scandal of grace, and it just gets better and better for this repentant sinner. And it also gets more and more scandalous. Look at what happens next. Verse 15, it says, And he, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Jesus not only invites this outcast into a relationship with him, Jesus now takes it even further. He goes to this guy's house and he shares a meal with him. This is significant. This is the day of Levi's salvation and now they are celebrating. Let the church of God take note here. Anytime a sinner repents and turns to the Lord in faith, we ought to throw a huge party and celebrate. And look at what else is going on. Levi and Jesus aren't the only ones in attendance. Clearly, Levi had a huge house because, remember, he'd been robbing people. He was a rich guy. Uh, the text tells us that many tax collectors and sinners were at this dinner kicking it with Jesus and his disciples. There's a lot of people here. Levi has had a radical heart change, and now he wants all of his friends and colleagues to have this exact same encounter with the Lord. Levi is not just devoted to Christ as a teacher, but he is devoted to him as a person as well. And Jesus intends for his disciples to follow him with everything that they are. And we see in Levi radical faith become a minister of the gospel to the needs of others, just as Jesus was a minister to him. These people reclining at the table with Jesus, were there for the same reason that Levi was there. They knew they needed his grace. They knew they needed his forgiveness. And the text says many people followed him. The mill itself, it's symbolic of the great banquet coming in Revelation chapter 19 when we see people from every tribe and nation and tongue on the face of the earth 
people gathered together, those who have experienced God's grace and forgiveness through faith in Christ from generation to generation, and we will have an unfathomable opportunity to recline at the table with our King Jesus at a glorious banquet that will never, ever end. And this should be the cause of celebration, especially among the religious leaders of the day. But look at how they responded. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What we're beginning to see is that these Pharisees are slightly more bold than they were in our text last week. Last week, they dared not say anything to Jesus, but Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts and their minds because he is God. Here, today, they're at least willing to approach Jesus' disciples. You know, complaining about the person with actually going to the person you're complaining about. This is aka as gossiping. Yes, the gossips here. This is the height of hypocrisy The tax collectors were humble and contrite. The religious leaders, you know, those that knew the scriptures, were angry because people were repenting and turning to God. Daniel Aiken says something about this that I think it's noteworthy, especially in light of the goings-on in our culture in, in this moment in history. Though not the main point of my message today, uh, I want to point this out that something is taking place here. He says, These religious leaders show us an important truth. Bigotry is always ugly and pathetic. It betrays fear and the depravity of our hearts and is clear evidence that we are sinful people that desperately need grace in our lives, even as we proclaim that grace to others. Jesus will certainly welcome the targets of such prejudice as honored guests and beloved members of God's family, provided they come through faith in him. These Pharisees don't see it. They're focusing only on externals. They're focusing only on behaviors. Listen to me, church. Behavior modification is not the goal of the gospel. It is heart change. We can do a lot of good, godly stuff with wrong, sinful motives. It is possible to live a moral, abstinent life and still miss God in the process. It is possible to live moral lives and make all of that all about us. It is easy to follow the form and the function of religion and completely miss the substance of Christianity. The Pharisees are completely neglecting the weightier portions of the law concerning justice and mercy and faith and only placing heavy burdens on the people that they're supposed to be teaching and serving. Jesus, on the other hand, is focusing on hearts. Verse 17 says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Jesus hears their complaining, and Jesus responds. There's a lot of irony in how Jesus responds to the complaints, but the Pharisees are too spiritually blind to even recognize it. 
Jesus places both the tax collectors and the Pharisees on equal footing before the cross. Everyone, everyone needs Jesus, the great physician, to heal our sin-sick hearts. The difference here between these two groups is that the tax collectors knew and recognized their need for Jesus. You must see your need before you can be fixed. You must know that you are spiritually dead before you can be made alive in Christ. Listen, I think this is important for us to understand, especially if you are a prototypical West Texan. Culturally speaking, we are a lot like the Pharisees. We are probably a lot worse than the Pharisees. We can attend church when our schedule permits. We may serve in church because that's what we're supposed to do. But again, if we never get to the heart of Jesus, we're just as bad or worse than they are. If you claim to be a Christian and your life looks nothing like what God is calling you to, I want to lovingly tell you, you may not be a Christian If you claim to be a Christian and you don't desire the things of Christ, you may think you're a Christian and you may not be. There's grace for you. Because that's what we see in this exchange with Jesus and this tax collector. Never once does Jesus condone their behaviors. If Jesus was cool with what they were doing, he wouldn't have needed to offer them grace and forgiveness. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House, he says, Jesus ate with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners, which is the essence of what the Pharisees are actually accusing him of. Jesus is not an accomplice of evil here. He is functioning only as a friend and a physician. He is in no danger of contracting their diseases. He is only bending to heal them of their sicknesses. The sickness is sin. The sickness is death. For us, this encounter, this exchange, what we see in Jesus, what we see in Levi, this should propel us outward to those who don't know Christ. Man, some of you need to hear this because some of you just are not very good at this. It is entirely possible to befriend non-Christians and not compromise your faith in the process. It is entirely possible to have non-Christian friends and still be faithful to God. It is actually part of your calling as a Christian to not only share the word of God with unbelievers, but to also share our lives. There's a lot of grace for our failures here. But we no longer have an excuse to sit idly by The goal of all of this is not primarily getting people in the doors of the fun dome. The goal is not to fill every seat in this room. I think that's a good endeavor to have people here. But the end goal for us as a church is that we would see spiritually dead people come alive in Christ through faith in the resurrected King Jesus. Jesus is making one thing abundantly clear 
in his relationship with the tax collectors and sinners and his following exchange with the Pharisees. Jesus is offering salvation, full and free, but it is not extended to righteous people. Meaning this, there's really nothing Jesus can do for you if you don't think you need Jesus. There is nothing Jesus can do for you if you do not think you are a sinful person. There is nothing Jesus can do for you if you do not think you are a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. However, Jesus is willing to forgive the humble, the contrite, and the repentant sinners. Those who know they are unworthy. Those who know their need. Those who recognize that they are a sinner in desperate need of saving. Man, in Jesus there is love and acceptance. Even if you consider yourself to be the worst of the worst. Man, Jesus in love looks past your sinful behaviors and desires to give you a new heart and a new mind and anchor your affections in him. Jesus' desires to have close and intimate fellowship with you in spite of you. Cheer up. You are worse than you think. So that leads us back to where we started. Are you the repentant tax collector who recognizes your need for his love and his mercy and his amazing grace? Are you the tax collector willing to step away from your possessions and wealth and anything else that may be hindering you from getting to Jesus? Or are you the Pharisee? Are you the Pharisee that either thinks you have no need for forgiveness because of your good deeds, because of how good you are, how awesome you think you are? Are you the legalistic Pharisee that thumbs your nose to the plight of others? Listen to me, your good deeds will not and cannot justify you before a holy and just and righteous God. On the other hand, if you're in Christ, God has preordained good works for you to walk in faith with the presence and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But these good works are for His glory, not ours. Man, if we say we're a church that follows Christ, then let us be all in here. Let us be a church that follows Christ. Let us be the church that welcomes those who are struggling in sin and shame and call them in love to the truth of the gospel. Let us be like Levi, who following the example of Jesus, radically models the faith necessary to call sinners to faith in Jesus. This Jesus who is offering us something better than the life we are currently living. Jesus is a friend of sinners. In the ministry of Jesus, we, call, we see him calling the seemingly undesirable, the unlovable, the otherwise unreachable into the sphere of his love. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So I submit to you this, that Jesus still calls the undesirable, the unlovable, and the otherwise unreachable into the sphere of his love but the primary vehicle that, that Jesus uses to reach the world is himself. Uh, 
through the church. The primary vehicle that Jesus uses to reach the world to himself is the church. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus because you are the church. What we see in Jesus is that he loved those the world otherwise doesn't. He cares for them. He spends time with them. He doesn't trivialize their sin. He doesn't patronize them in their struggles. But he shares his life with them. Ultimately, he shares his life with them by dying in our place on the cross. Listen, if you are a Christian, do you know what you've been saved from? If you were in Christ, you were once the tax collector. If you were in Christ, you, like the tax collector, have been uh, forgiven. You've been redeemed. How does that knowledge of what you've been saved from change things for you? Does it cause you to go and live the way that this former tax collector lives in our story? Are you inviting people who you do life with, who you work with, who you spend time with that don't know Jesus to come and see? If your faith does not propel you outward, then you may not only be missing a huge component of the faith, you may also be missing a huge blessing from the Lord to share in the work of his ministry. If Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe he is, and if he is our Lord and Savior, and I believe he is, we too must follow his example and go to the world and proclaim the excellencies of the risen Savior. Church, we've got a lot of work to do. Let's pray.